0: We got married when we were 25. We started dating when we were 20, we got married when we were 25. And then we had our daughter, I guess it was just before our year anniversary. Our oldest daughter was two years old when we found out we were having twins. We found out we were having identical twins, and they were high risk. They're higher risk than fraternal. We waited until we 24 weeks, and we were admitted back to the hospital so that I could wait until the girls were born. Our goal was to get to 28 weeks, and we did pass that. We got to 29 weeks. I couldn't feel the babies move typically, but I just had a bad feeling that there was something wrong. Something just told me. Let your doctor know. Let them check them. And if it's nothing, then it's nothing. So they came in, they did another ultrasound, and Janie passed the test, and Ellie did not. And at this point, it was code red. We are going for a C-section and taking these two little two and a half, three and a half pound babies out. And they both made it. And I remember being in the hospital and praying the prayer that everybody prays, whether you believe or you don't. And mine was, God, if they're just gonna be okay, I promise I will seek you or find a church or at least give it a go. I did learn that Forest Hill was a huge church, and I was like, yes, I can just slide in, nobody's ever gonna notice me, and if I don't come, nobody's gonna notice I didn't come back. The only times we ever attended church was for Easter, for Christmas, or something more forced. Each holiday, um, like I said before, it was Christmas was Santa, Easter was the Easter bunny, and that was it growing up. I went every Sunday, and then I got a little more curious as I got comfortable and learned about Starting Point and thought, maybe this is where I can ask those questions. Maybe this is the place that I'm going to be able to stump them. So we went in. I didn't even know how to open a Bible and turn to anything in a Bible, so that was also another awkward point. But they were so ready. They gave us a Bible, and did those basic steps with us, and it did feel even easier just to get that one hurdle over with. Um, After Starting Point, I felt like I wanted to be more involved in our church, so I started volunteering at the kids' check-in on Sundays, um, and at that point, I felt like I was ready to find a life group, and at the same time, I was asked to lead a first-grade girls' life group, so I just went for it, and it was another—I felt like it was another safe place for me to and ask questions. A couple months into Life Group, I knew that I was ready to be baptized and felt like I was ready to be all in. Um, I felt like my, my doubts were lifted along the way. I don't think there was just one certain moment when it just clicked. Um, I think I was more at a point where I didn't need the physical proof anymore. I just had faith in my heart at that point. So I listen to worship music now, and I'm doing all these weird things that I thought was so weird before I went to church. It's part of my life now. I am that weirdo that goes to life group. I'm the weirdo that goes every Sunday and volunteers. I love worship music, and I never thought in my life I would ever say that. But it's true, and um, it makes you laugh a little, but also it makes you wonder where your next step is going to be. I feel like it's my first Easter, really, without the bunny. It's funny how things change and God changes you.
1: Could we praise God for a changed life? It's wonderful to see the Lord taking someone and making a new person out of them. Welcome to Forest Hill Church, one church, five campuses, and in fact, next week... The South Boulevard campus officially opens with Jonathan Matos as the pastor. Would you praise God for that wonderful good piece of good news too? Uh, He will take my messages and preach them a week later in Spanish and then we'll start hopefully an English service soon thereafter so that uh, people can have both of them at their availability. But we're excited about serving that fragile uh, community and helping them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. In the early church on Easter Sunday, the pastor would always say, he is alive. The congregation assembled on that Easter Sunday would always respond, he is alive indeed. Let's do so today. He is alive One more time, please. He is alive. He is alive. The resurrection, the most important message in the world. Next week, Clayton King will come and preach the first part of the series that really does attach itself to today's message, as I hope you'll see at the end. I want to read to you some verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 probably the most profound chapter in all of the Bible about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're able, out of reverence for the reading of his word, would you now please stand? For those of you who have not been here before, we hold the scripture in high regard. Uh, In the early church, whenever it was read, people would stand out of reverence for its reading. That's why we do so here in this church. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers... "...of the gospel I preached to you when you received it, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance," the gospel of Jesus Christ is of first importance, it is more important than anything else, "...what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures." For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Then in verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. And verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The most important event in all of human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When his resurrection power enters the hearts of people and they form the church and they move into the world, The world has changed. That's what happened in the Greco-Roman Empire. As these bands of Christians formed churches all over the Roman Empire, things like the equality of women happened in the Roman Empire. Children were no longer aborted nor cast aside, but were started to be adopted by Christian families. Slavery, that hideous evil that existed in the Roman Empire, slowly but surely began to be replaced with equality among all people. When people understand the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand it's the most powerful event in the history of the world. But if the resurrection is not true, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, three things happen. First of all, the Christian faith is futile, in verse 13. There's no forgiveness of sins, there's no resurrection hope. Secondly, sins are not forgiven, in verse 17. We live forever in our guilt bitterness, and unforgiveness. Thirdly, Christians should be pitied above all other people, verse 19. I think in my own life, if the resurrection isn't true, that over the past three plus decades, I have used the time, talents, and treasures given to me for naught, for no reason. And if you believe in the resurrection and it's not true, you too are a person most to be pitied. It means that we've spent our life believing a lie. Therefore, verse 32 tells us if the resurrection isn't true, we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. We should buy the American lie of postmodernism, which is the basic belief system of our contemporary American culture. Postmodernism basically believes that you do what you want to do, I do what I want to do, and if somewhere we meet along the way, it's beautiful. There's no absolute truth. We believe whatever we want to believe, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. If that is true, we have fallen prey to Judges chapter 21, 25, a verse in the Bible that describes the darkest days in all of Israel's history. It says, In those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the American Mindset today. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes because if the resurrection isn't true, we might as well just do whatever we want eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. We have arrived at ultimate narcissism. But the truth is, the resurrection is true. It is not a lie. It can be supported, first of all, by rational historical data, by first of all, looking at the reality that Jesus was dead. Paul, starting with verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 15, gives a creedal statement that was written within three years of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you must say that Jesus, first of all, was dead, that Christ died for our sins, and that also he was buried. Now, why is that important? Because people through the centuries have tried to offer different perspectives to disprove the resurrection. One of those is the swoon theory. The swoon theory holds to the fact that Jesus went through a merciless scourging by the Roman guards, 39 lashes of a leather whip matted with bone and glass that bit into his back 39 times. Roman guards nicknamed that experience as intermediate death because most people died whenever they went through it. Jesus did not. His back would resemble hamburger meat after having gone through it. And then as the swoon theory advances itself, he was nailed to a cross, his arms and his feet nailed in a position where he had to die by asphyxiation. Those six hours on the cross would basically cause his lung capacity to cease. And over time he could no longer raise himself up to breathe and then exhale. Eventually he would become so tired he would die from asphyxiation. That's why the Roman guards went to the base of the cross as the Sabbath approached and were ready to break the bones of all the three people on the cross, but did not Jesus' bones because, first of all, it was a fulfillment of prophecy that not one bone of the Messiah's body would ever be broken, but secondly, he was dead. These guards were experienced with death. That's what they did all day long. They killed people. He was dead. But the swoon theory says that when they took him down off the cross, he wasn't really dead. He was put into the tomb, and somehow, after that one-ton stone was rolled in front of the opening, in the middle of the night, in that damp tomb, he was revived and somehow got the strength to push away a one-ton stone, then elude crack Roman guards who knew that they were placed there to stop The rumor that Jesus himself had started on three different occasions saying the Son of Man would go to Jerusalem and die and be raised from the dead. They knew that rumor was out there. They didn't want that body to come out of the womb, out of the tomb in any way, so they guarded it with the utmost care. But then the swoon theory says somehow Jesus eluded those crack Roman guards who knew that if he escaped, they would face the same punishment he faced, which would mean they would die on a cross, crucified, died of asphyxiation. And then Jesus would somehow find his disciples who were cowards, hiding, afraid of their own death, and go to them and present his body bloodied, bruised, bedraggled, and broken and say, here's your resurrection hope. And then his disciples would take that body and say that's the body we're going to have one day and concoct the message of the resurrection to continue to give hope to the world. If you believe that, it's easier to believe in the resurrection. But that's the swoon theory. And it revolves around the fact that Jesus wasn't really dead. But every early creedal statement makes the point he was dead on the cross. Secondly, Paul points out that there were eyewitnesses to this resurrection. There were over 500 of them who saw Jesus alive. Now, that is what refutes the second advanced theory through the centuries to disprove the resurrection. Uh, People have suggested that people saw in an hallucination a risen Jesus. The problem with that is every psychologist or people who understand Hallucination therapy would say 500 people plus don't have the same hallucination at the same time. Individuals have hallucinations, but not 500 people at the very same time. So Paul says, look at these 500 plus. And he even names some of them as if to say, you go talk to them yourselves, They're out there. In fact, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel, there are names of people who were living at the time of the first Corinthian writing. Now, now some had fallen asleep, some had died, but many still lived, and Paul's inviting any skeptic, go talk to them. Hear their names. Hear the names in the gospel accounts. Go talk to them, and they'll tell you they saw a resurrected Jesus. It was not an hallucination. And then finally, Another reason to believe in the resurrection from these verses in 1 Corinthians 15 are the changed lives of all the apostles, but particularly the three that Paul names. By the way, an apostle is someone who walked with Jesus and they saw his resurrection. The first name that he mentions is Cephas or Peter. Who's Peter? Peter is the one who was in the inner circle of Jesus' followers with James and John. He was perhaps Jesus' closest friend. Peter denied he even knew Jesus in the courtyard when Jesus was taken away to be crucified. Not once, not twice, but three times he denied he even knew Jesus. Now the difference between Peter though and Judas is they both denied Jesus, but Judas hung himself in his despair, believing that God's grace was not able to forgive him. But Peter encountered a resurrected Jesus Who not once, not twice, but three times on the shore of the lake of Tiberias assured assured Peter that he loved him. For each one of his denials, Jesus assured him he loved him. And he restored Peter in forgiveness to a relationship with him. Now, how does one go from a threefold denial, saying, I don't even know the man... A coward running away, not wanting anything to do with Jesus, but suddenly becomes a pillar of the church of Jesus Christ. That can only happen if something extraordinary intervenes in his life and causes him to change perspectives. What was that? The resurrection. The second people that Paul asks all of us to look at is the person of James. Who's James? James was the half-brother of Jesus. In the birth order of Jesus' family, Jesus was first. Joseph probably died. He oversaw the carpentry business until the next person, who was probably uh, James, could then overtake, the, could take on the carpenter's business. And then Jesus went out into the world and started his ministry. But you see in the gospel accounts, on several different occasions. It was James along with Mary and the other members of the family who came to Jesus and basically said, come home, you're stirring up a hornet's nest. You're going to die because of what you're doing. The religious leaders are against you. You've got a nice business at home. You know the business, it's fairly profitable. Come on home, escape this problem you're creating. And then this James, who was one of Jesus' great skeptics when he walked on this earth, saw resurrected Jesus because the bible tells us this James later became the head of the Jerusalem church and suffered great persecution because of that position now how in the world does someone go from being a total skeptic of Jesus life to a major proclaimer of the truth of Jesus' resurrection and a pillar in his church. The only answer can be he saw a resurrected Jesus. The third example is Paul himself. Paul says that he was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. He killed dozens, maybe even hundreds of people. But then on the road to Damascus one day, a resurrected Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And suddenly this Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, the apostle who proclaims the gospel to the western world. And the fact is, had he not turned west with the passion of the gospel on his breath, you and I would probably not be sitting here today. What changed Paul from a major persecutor of the church to the major proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ? He says so clearly, I saw a resurrected Jesus. When you look at the eyewitness accounts of who saw Jesus alive, when you look at the changed lives of who saw Jesus alive, there can only be one conclusion, Jesus was raised from the dead. Moreover, there's the empty tomb, the empty tomb. I love the story of Mary Magdalene telling Peter and John that the tomb is empty, and John in his gospel tells the story of how they both ran to the tomb, but John beat Peter there. And it's just like us to compare ourselves to other people. And John say, I'm a bit faster than Peter was. And Peter arrived into the tomb, and it says he looked inside, and he believed. What caused him to believe? First of all, he looked at the grave clothes. It was as if those linen wrappings around the body of Jesus had collapsed, and the body just was taken out. And then also, secondly, there was the napkin, which was used to keep the chin And the mouth closed. When someone dies, always their mouth opens. And the Jews put a napkin that forced the mouth to be closed. But the Bible tells us in John's Gospel that the napkin was perfectly folded up as Jesus left the tomb. My wife always reminds me, David, why don't you be like Jesus and always fold up everything politely whenever you leave it, okay? And and, and the napkin was perfectly folded up. And when Peter looked at that, he believed. Dear friends, That one-ton stone was rolled away by God's mighty angels, not to let Jesus out, but to let you and me in. To let you and me in. You produce a body, and the Christian movement is over. All the Jewish authorities and the Romans had to do was produce a body, and the movement's over. And moreover, let me ask you this question. These disciples who were skeptics, who suddenly became proclaimers of the gospel, why in the world would they make up the story of Jesus having been raised from the dead only then to have to suffer persecution and martyrdom themselves? It doesn't make sense. People don't die for what they know is a lie. No, the truth is Jesus was raised from the dead and we should look into that empty tomb and like Peter and John, believe that he is alive. But not only is there historical data to verify the resurrection, there's also personal reasons to believe. Why? If the resurrection is true, that means Jesus' death on the cross satisfying God's desire for the forgiveness of our sins to happen is true. That means that when Jesus died on the cross, he took all of our sins upon himself, something he didn't deserve as the perfect God-man, and then offers us the forgiveness of our sins, something we don't deserve because we're so sinful. Oh, dear friends, I'll lead the parade. I'm one who realizes, like Paul, I'm the least of all people. I'm the most unworthy of his forgiveness. And yet God gave it to me. He gives it to you through his cross, and the resurrection proves that the cross is true. If Jesus is just a mere man, he stays in the tomb, but you can't keep a good God down. He has to be raised from the dead if he's God, and he was raised from the dead, and that means that our sins are forgiven. Can you give God glory for that? Your sins are forever (laughs) forgiven. You don't have to live in guilt and shame any longer. The forgiveness of your sins is true. Moreover, your greatest enemy is not ISIS. As horrific as the things ISIS is doing around the world right now, especially in Belgium over the last week or so. The greatest enemy that we're facing is not ISIS. The greatest enemy we all face is death. And the one who subjected this world to sin and the ultimate, consummate death reality, God himself, is the only one who can unlock the door to let us be freed from death. And God did so on the cross. Now no longer do we have to fear death. Death has been conquered. Its sting has been overcome. We have the reality of the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. If that's true, secondly, hope comes to all of us. No matter what we face, we face it with hope. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. What does that mean? It means that no matter what you or I face in this world, we face it with hope. We realize that everything in this world is fading away. It's wasting away. And our present pain that we're going through is light and momentary in comparison to the glory of the resurrection reality we will know one day. Light and momentary. Say those two words with me. Light and momentary again light and momentary in comparison to eternal glory you're going to get to heaven and be surrounded by the resurrection glory of Jesus and all the stuff you and I've gone through will be quickly forgotten it's light and momentary first Thessalonians 4 13 says that we who are Christians do not grieve like those who aren't Christians we grieve with hope There's a huge difference. As someone who's walked with many different people in their last stages of life, I can tell you there's a huge difference between those who are facing death with hope and those who are hopeless, those who have hope Enjoy the reality of death because they know that's the porthole to be able to enter into eternal life. We had a lady here a couple of years ago, a missionary who loved Jesus with all her heart, soul, mind, and might. She had cancer, thought she was going to die in the night because everything was so severe. She called her family around her. She said goodbye to them all. Final prayers, closed her eyes, and woke up the next morning. Her first words were, oh, doggone it. (laughs) Would you feel that way? Would you feel that way? Oh, doggone it. Still here. Still here. Light and momentary. We grieve with hope because we know what's awaiting us. But if the resurrection isn't true, we don't have that hope. But it is true, therefore we do have that hope. And finally, we have a purpose We have a purpose. God gives us all a job description to be restorers of his kingdom. The biblical reality is that in creation God made everything perfect, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, there's a terrible fall that's caused everything in this world to go awry, and we now die where God never intended that to be. So God calls a nation called Israel, brings in his son Jesus through that nation who dies on the cross to forgive us of our sins, and then he gives us our job description, John 3, 5. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He places his kingdom within us when we're born again, when we know the forgiveness of our sins, and his Holy Spirit invades our hearts powerfully, and our job description is basically this, folks. Until we die, restore the kingdom. Now, he'll ultimately do that in his second coming. That's positively his complete work, but until that day, we do the best we can to bring what's in heaven to this earth, What's that like? It's Gentry and Hadley Eddings last summer losing their two sons in this church in a tragic automobile accident, then facing the guy who was on drugs who drove the truck into the cars that killed their two boys, and they forgive him. They forgive him because in heaven, forgiveness and love will be the major operating virtues. They bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's Daniel Fogarty and a group of people in this church who realize that when kids come off the streets and get into apartments with their parents, they they don't have beds to sleep on. And they suddenly discover this reality. And Daniel leaves his very lucrative business and starts a ministry called Beds for Kids to take thousands upon thousands of beds to kids so that they can sleep and have a better chance of making a life of themselves in their schools. Your job description is to be a restorer of the kingdom until he comes again. Gives you purpose. Next week, Clayton King is going to begin our 13-part series on the kingdom of God. What it means to be a member of the kingdom, to advance his kingdom. And that will launch a series that we hope will continue this resurrection weekend. Because the truth is the resurrection inaugurates the kingdom of God. That's the reason we can celebrate it today. It's why it's not a passing historical question mark. It is the most relevant moment in the history of humankind. And I hope you believe that today because he is alive. alive. One more time, he is alive. alive. Will then stand up and give God an uproarious ovation for the fact that he is alive, he is risen from the grave, he has overcome sin and death. We live in the reality of the forgiveness of our sins and the glory of God. We don't live in shame. We don't live in fear. We don't live in anything except His resurrection glory. And if you believe that, shout, amen.